The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So we've been going through the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, which means the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ and his plan for the end times, the future, and really all of history. And it's been exciting. Over at the retreat, uh, the men's retreat, 150 men, and there were some pastors there, and one pastor was asking me what I was preaching through, and I said, Revelation. He said, really? I said, yeah. He goes, well, wow, are you like uh, going like one verse every week or like big chunks at a time? I said, well, kind of big chunks at a time. He goes, oh, good, because that's, oh, that's a lot of bad news for a long period of time if you're only going verse by verse. <laughs> the, the saints can only handle the wrath of God so many weeks out of the year. I said, yeah, I, I, I know. There, but there's a reprieve of good news every once in a while in Revelation. Actually, we're going to see that next week in uh, Revelation chapter 7. Uh, nevertheless, you know, if it's somber and heavy and the wrath of God, it's still truth and it's going to happen. Uh, and I want to know what's going to happen in the future. In light of that, Jesus wanted to know, he wanted us to know what's going to happen in the future. So if you have your Bible open to Matthew 24, follow along. This is where Scott read earlier, but I want to highlight a couple of verses because what you need to know, you know, some Christians have the attitude, well, eschatology, it's not that important. Uh, the, what's going to happen in the future in those prophecy books and nobody really understands and knows what Revelation teaches anyway and it's not no, that's just not true the future is important prophecy is important the end times is important and I know that because Jesus taught on it in all four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John he did extensively in Luke and in Matthew and at the end of his ministry he dedicates more than two entire chapters to his disciples to prepare them for the end times when the apostles weren't even going to be around because he wanted the saints throughout the ages to know about it. So if you haven't ever perused or read carefully through Matthew 24, Matthew 24 actually is a concise summary in one chapter of what's going to happen in Revelation 6 through 22. So it's a beautiful thing. And in Matthew 24, it's chronological. It goes in order. The content of Matthew 24 is the seven-year tribulation that is yet future, that is predicted in the book of Daniel. And Jesus goes chronologically. He starts in verse 2 at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Then he goes to verse 15, what's going to happen at the middle of the tribulation. And then he culminates what's going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation, verse 28, 29, and following. So he goes chronologically in order. There is an order. There is sequence. This is not talking about what happened throughout church history in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, contrary to what many would say, this didn't happen and was not fulfilled at 70 A.D. with the Romans when they sacked Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with that in Matthew 24. The rapture is not mentioned anywhere in Matthew 24, as some Christians would have us believe. This is strictly a reference to the end times, the seven-year tribulation that culminates with the coming of Jesus Christ at the second coming at the end of the age. And it is an exact parallel with the content of Revelation 6 through really 19. Of Revelation, And in particular, the beginning of Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 1 through 14, parallels Revelation chapter 6, where we've been for two weeks. So that's what I want to highlight here. So Matthew 24, go ahead and look at verse uh, 2. Actually, up to that verse 3. Uh, the, this is the last week of Jesus' life, so he wants to prepare them. Verse 25 of Matthew 24 says, Behold, I'm telling you in advance... The reason is because he wants to prepare them. So verse 3 says, And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples, probably the apostles, came to him privately, saying, Tell us, 
Jesus. When will these things be? What things? The things of the end of the age. These things be. And what will be the sign of your coming, your final coming? And of the end of the age. So that's the context. The end of the age. The end of world history. In the future. Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. This is prophetic. Jesus is really... He's speaking to His disciples, but it applies to Jewish believers who are living during the tribulation. And that's common with prophetic literature. He's talking to one audience and its ultimate fulfillment is a far distant audience in the future. And that's what's happening here. In verse 4, And so Jesus answered and said to them, really the believing Israelites during the tribulation, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, like the first rider on the horse, on a white horse, saying, Peace, peace. And they will mislead many. Verse 6, And when you... Uh, and you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. That's uh, the black and red horses that were riding on their horses of war and devastation and death. These sealed judgments correspond perfectly. Many will come in my name saying, oh, uh, yeah, verse 5, and many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Uh, many will be misled. Verse 6, and you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that no one... Uh, see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So that's this is the beginning of the tribulation. It is not the end. You should know this as taught in Daniel, the sequence, verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That, again, is the seal judgments that we're dealing with right now, the beginning of the tribulation. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. We saw that uh, in one of the seal judgments of worldwide famine. Uh, verse 8, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's the beginning of the tribulation, not the end. And that's why I called the last sermon and this one the beginning of birth pangs, part 1 and 2. I'm just using Jesus' terminology. The, the great tribulation hasn't started yet. It kicks off in the middle of the tribulation. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. These are believers, particularly believing Jews during the tribulation. Uh, those who hate God and hate believers, they're going to... Uh, persecute you. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations on account of me. It's going to be a worldwide hatred of believing Jews during the tribulation. They're already getting set. The stage is being set, isn't it? The nation of Israel right now is surrounded by 57 nations that hate them and want to push them into the Mediterranean Sea right now. Just this worldwide hatred of not just Jews, but also just believers, people who get saved during the tribulation. They're going to hate you. They're going to kill you. All the nations are going to do it on account of my name. They hate Jesus. Uh, and verse 10, and at that time, many will fall away. You know what that means? That means that uh, there's going to be a lot of professing believers. But when persecution comes, when trials come, they will expose themselves as false believers. That's what persecution does. It exposes false believers. That's why persecuted nations, persecuted areas have pure churches because true Christians are willing to put their life on the line for Christ. Phonies aren't. That time, uh, many will fall away from the faith. They will betray one another. They're going to hate one another. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise. They'll mislead many. Great religious deception worldwide. Verse 12, uh, society isn't going to get more secular. Society is going to actually get more religious through time. Uh, verse 12, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the ones who endure to the end of the tribulation, seven-year period, that's what he's talking about, uh, they shall be saved physically, literally, at the coming of Christ. 
So there's a context there. Verse 14 in the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel about Christ, the gospel of free grace, the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. That's the gospel of the kingdom. There's only one gospel shall be preached in the whole world. And Jesus is going to use 144 Jewish evangelists during the seven year period that he's going to protect that we're going to meet in Revelation 7 to do that along with two uh, witnesses that have supernatural powers and ability like Moses and Elijah to get the word out as well as other believing people at that time to evangelize the entire world despite the rejection and persecution. Then verse 15 says, oh, and then it says the end will come. But verse 15 is the abomination of desolation. That is the middle of the tribulation. And then the sequence goes from there. Um, so really Matthew 24 is the foundation of Revelation 6. Let's go ahead and go there. Flip now to Revelation chapter 6. And by way of reminder, um, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, John gives us an outline of the book, the threefold outline of Revelation. He says right there, For John, you, the apostle, the things which you have seen, that's the vision of Christ in chapter 1, and also write down the things which are the present things, that's the church age, represented by those seven real historical churches. And then finally, write down part 3, John, in your book, and that's the things which shall take place after these things, after the church age which is the future, which is primarily the seven-year tribulation after these things. And that's really what the bulk of the book of Revelation is all about. It's about the future tribulation. And in one of the, let's go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, just to be reminded. In Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia, He gives a universal promise to all believers in verse 13 of Revelation 3 when He says, He who has an ear. Listen! Christians, this promise is not just for those believers in Philadelphia 2,000 years ago. It's for anybody who's a believer during the church age. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit of God says to the churches. And part of that blessed, glorious promise from Jesus Christ is in verse 10 of chapter 3. And I want to read it again by way of reminder. Because he talks about what the Christian's relationship is to this seven-year coming tribulation. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, you've been a faithful Christian, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. I will keep you from the time period of the tribulation, believer, Christian. I'm going to keep you from the very hour. That hour, which is about to come upon the whole world. It's a universal time of wrath upon the world. Predicted by Daniel. Predicted by Jesus. Fulfilled in the writings of the book of Revelation. That hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test, to try to punish earth dwellers. Again, that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, the better rendering is earth dwellers. It is a technical term referred to 11 times in Revelation and always the earth dwellers are evil unbelievers who hate God with utter defiance every single time. The purpose of the tribulation where God pours out His wrath is to test, to try, to punish earth dwellers. Not God's people, not Christians, not the church. And we're going to see that today in the sixth seal. So this is a glorious promise if you're a believer. If you are a Christian right now, you are going to be safeguarded from the future tribulation. That doesn't mean that you're, God's promising you that you're going to live your Christian life now without any tribulation because you've probably got plenty of tribulation going on in your life right now. You don't need any more. You don't need the great tribulation. i got the great tribulation going on in my house or my job or your situation. So you've been called to suffer for Christ because that's our lot in this life. But you are going to be spared from the wrath of God in the future during this seven-year tribulation. So with that background, let's go to Revelation 
chapter 6, we looked at, and we're going to look at the fifth seal and the sixth seal judgment, which happened in the first part of the seven-year tribulation. And we already looked at the first four, and that was verses uh, 1 through 8 in Revelation chapter 6. The first seal was the white horse representing somebody who's going to come and conquer the whole earth and is going to consolidate world power and authority. Uh, then we saw the second seal that Jesus unveiled, and that was the red horse where a sword was given to the rider, and there's just going to be worldwide death, murder, slaughtering, and peace is going to be taken away. Then we saw the third seal, which was the black horse. The rider had the scales, and there's going to be worldwide famine, which always happens after wars and devastation, right? And then we saw uh, the seal number four was the pale horse, the sickly, the Clorox-looking horse, the horse of just pale death with Hades following behind. And the prediction, very specifically, was that one-fourth of the earth's entire population at that time is going to be slaughtered, killed. Probably many of those people who believed at that time. And a big chunk of those, according to the Old Testament, are going to be believing Jews who've come to believe in Jesus Christ. And they're not going to be killed by God. They're going to be killed by people who hate Jesus and the gospel. So those were the first four seals, those horses. Let's go and look at the second seals in the beginning of birth pangs, part two. And that's verses 9 through 17. Let me go ahead and read it. So after that fourth horse is revealed. Uh, the fifth seal is revealed, and that's verse 9. And it says, When Jesus, He, broke the fifth seal, and these are sequential. This is chronological. There is an order here in a sequence in how this is all happening in history, in the future. When He broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar. This altar is in heaven, by the way. The souls, these are believers who had died, of those who had been slain or murdered because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And these souls cried out with a loud voice. This was a prayer saying, How long, O Lord? Literally, how long, O Master of Heaven? Despotes, not kurias. Despot. God is a despot, a holy one. How long, O Master, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those earth dwellers who killed us during the tribulation? Verse 11 and there was given to each one of these souls a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants, even their brethren, who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. That was the fifth seal. And now the sixth seal, verse 12. And I looked, and he, that is Jesus, broke the sixth seal on the scroll, and there was a great earthquake, seismos, seismology, shaking, massive earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the moon became like blood. It looked like blood. Verse 13, And the stars are the lights of the sky. Literally, the asteroids. Asterisk is the Greek word. The asteroids of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was like split apart a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their place, shaking. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of the Lamb who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So these are seal judgments, number five and number six. Let's go ahead and look at these. As Jesus is... Peeling away that seal, which means that he is in charge 
of what goes on. He is in charge of the wrath. He dispenses the wrath. This is the wrath of God. We've heard about the love of Jesus, which is true. The blessed Savior who came to seek and save the lost. The love of Jesus. The incomparable love of Jesus. The gracious Savior. And those who inevitably reject His grace and reject the gospel and reject His provision of salvation, they will only be left to face His wrath. So yes, you have the love of Jesus and you also have the wrath of the Lamb and they go together. That's a complete view of God and a complete view of who Jesus really is. And so let's look at point number one. Just two points around these two seals. The Lamb opens the fifth seal. Well, what is it? Well, it talks about worldwide martyrdom. That's verses 9 to 11. Every one of these seals, by the way, is a judgment from God. Every one of these seals is God pouring out His wrath. Now, technically, the judgment or the wrath of God being unveiled in seal number five is not the martyrs, because God isn't killing the Christian or the believing martyrs. It was unbelievers that are killing the believers. The real judgment is in what the martyrs pray. They pray for God's wrath to come down to avenge their blood. That's really the judgment in this seal. And we're going to see that. But there is worldwide martyrdom. Just a couple of highlights. Let's look at it. When Verse 9, when Jesus broke this fifth seal, I saw underneath. So this is John, the apostle, who has a vision of heaven and a vision of the future as a prophet. This hasn't happened yet. This is yet future during the tribulation of what's going to happen. And so John has this great privilege as he sees underneath the altar, the souls. By the way, this altar is not on earth. This altar is probably what represented the altar of incense that was in the literal physical tabernacle and eventually the temple on earth in Old Testament Israel. Exodus, I think it's Exodus chapter 40, talks about this altar of incense where the priests were supposed to burn incense on this littler altar. There were two altars. Huge altar where they sacrificed blood blood sacrifices for sin. Then there was a smaller altar where they would burn incense and the smoke would rise up and it was figurative of the prayers of the saints going up to God. Which means God responds to the prayers of the saints. And that's what this, that's what this altar is. The book of Hebrews says that every instrument found in the literal tabernacle had a replica that was spiritual yet real up in heaven in God's heavenly tabernacle. So there is in some way an altar of incense up in heaven before God's throne where the prayers of the saints are received by God. And so that's the imagery here. It is prayer. So I saw underneath the altar, probably the altar of incense, up in heaven, so this is a vision of heaven, the souls. So they don't have their resurrected physical bodies yet. They have souls. It's like when a believer dies, the moment they stop breathing, their soul leaves that physical body and instantaneously arrives in heaven. doesn't go into soul sleep. doesn't go into purgatory. A believer who dies, the moment they stop breathing, they are instantaneously transferred into the presence of God, where their soul is, where they're totally conscious. Everything is intact. Their will, their emotions, their thinking. But it is without sin. But they don't have their resurrected body yet. And that's why it says their souls are there. They wait. They await the resurrection, the physical resurrection, which John talks about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Get to that later. But what he sees is their soul. These aren't the souls of believers of all ages. These aren't the souls of Old Testament saints. These are the souls of those who had been murdered and killed in the yet future seven-year tribulation. He's explicit about that. Underneath the altar, 
saw the souls who had been slain because of the testimony of the Word of God. That terminology is also used about those in Revelation 7 who are killed during the tribulation and also Revelation 20, those who were slain because of their testimony during the seven-year tribulation. These are murdered, martyred, tribulation saints before the throne of God in heaven in their souls, awaiting their resurrection body. And why did they get killed? Because of the Word of God. They believed in Scripture. They believed in the Bible. They, they were believers. They knew Jesus Christ. They believed in the kingdom. They preached boldly. They stood up for their faith in the face of death. And they paid the penalty of death. Courageous believers. Also, they got killed because of the testimony they had, uh, which was in Jesus Christ. They were believers. Verse 10. Uh, and here's their prayer. They cried out. They, they, they screamed this prayer in heaven. It was a cry of desperation and of immediate intervention from holy God. Hear our prayer. Many times used of persecuted saints in the Old Testament, the Israelites. They cried out with a loud voice in heaven saying, How long, O Lord? And again, the word Lord, there's not the normal word for Lord in the New Testament, kurios. It's, uh, it's more in a more intense word, despot. God, You are the ruler. You are the judge. You are the mighty one. You are the powerful one with authority to judge. They're appealing to His very name which reflects His very character. How long, O Lord, O Master, and then, it, and then holy and true. God, You're holy. You can't tolerate sin. You must punish sin. And we were murdered by sinners. That's their prayer. And true, which means faithful. You're faithful to your word, God. You've said many times that vengeance is yours. That's what the book of Deuteronomy said. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's what they're praying. They are praying for the vengeance of God. Not just a personal vendetta, but against those who have rejected God and His word and His gospel of the worst order. This is an imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory psalms. There's all kinds of different psalms, but imprecatory psalms are those pretty harsh psalms where David or some of the saints are praying for the holy God of the universe to come down and judge his enemies. And many times that's a legitimate prayer. It's a legitimate prayer at times when it's in keeping with the will of God. That's a dangerous thing sometimes for Christians to always be praying for your enemies. Praying in a imprecatory psalm on your boss who didn't give you a raise. No, that's not the will of God. But many times it is the will of God. Jesus even affirmed this in his day in Luke 18. He said it was okay at times to pray for a holy God to bring about vengeance on behalf of the saints. We can't bring our own vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's Romans 12. And that's their prayer. It's an imprecatory psalm of righteousness and judgment that would be done on earth because their blood was crying out from the grave for justice, just like in Genesis when Abel got murdered and it says that his blood was crying up from the grave for justice. When Cain murdered Abel. That's this prayer. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on earth dwellers? There it is again. Earth dwellers. These evil believers during the tribulation that hate Christ and hate the gospel. How long? That's their prayer. It's a question. Verse 11 and there was given to each one of them a white robe. So immediately their, their prayer is not immediately answered, but it's answered with a physical action. It's actually answered with a gift, a physical gift. God doesn't just ignore them. He gives them this blessed gift. And there was given to each one of them a white robe, a, a white stole, a pure, pristine, long, flowing silk robe is the word. It's also used again in Revelation chapter 7. 
of other believers who are in heaven. And it's a gift from God of, of majesty, of cleanliness, of sinlessness, of being able to enjoy the presence of God and the presence of the Lamb immediately in heaven in glory, freed from all the toils and pains and persecutions and tears of life. So he's putting them at rest. You're in heaven now. Trust me, you're in heaven now. They're not sinful even though they're in heaven, but they are not omniscient even though they are in heaven. That's why they can pray this prayer in heaven. Just because you're perfected in heaven doesn't mean you're omniscient because you're not God. We won't be. There's prayer still going on in heaven. But it is perfectly in keeping with the will of God. So there's a gift in response to their prayer. Then he actually he, he answers their prayer. Uh, verse 11, and then they were told, here's the answer, that they should rest for a little while longer. Just be patient. And rest, that speaks of heaven. Heaven is intended to be a place where you can rest without tears, without pain. Enjoy heaven. Enjoy all the perks. Be at rest. Trust me, the sovereign God, your master, I will take care of it. So God puts them at ease in heaven. Rest. If you've ever had a, an unbelieving, uh, I mean, if you've ever had a believing uh, person that you know, whether it was a family member or whatever, and they died and they went to heaven, they're at rest. They're at rest. That's heaven in the presence of God. So be at rest. And notice, a little while longer. That's very specific Greek terminology, and it means a very short period of time. It could be days, weeks, months. Very rarely is it referring to years. But it is a very short period of time. Just, so that's the answer. You know what? I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to bring down judgment and uh, vengeance. And I will repay against the earth dwellers. I will answer your prayer. And this is really the content of the judgment of this seal. Every one of these seals is a judgment. Here is the judgment. God is going to answer their prayer. And he's going to unleash his wrath and full fury in a final and consummate way. In answer to the prayers of these saints. And he does it really through seal number seven, which amounts to the seven trumpet judgments, which amounts to the seven bold judgments of Revelation 16, where he just finally one pouring out of the full and final fury at the end of the tribulation upon earth dwellers. That's the judgment. God's going to pour out his wrath in answering this prayer. And this is a great reminder that God responds to the prayers of the saints. That's James chapter five, right? The fervent, efficacious prayer of the godly cause God to respond. Somehow the sovereign God of the universe, He responds to prayer. And He's going to do that right here. Against earth dwellers. Uh, verse 11. Uh, keep going there. Rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and even their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been uh, had been slain should be completed also. And what God's saying, you know what, I'm going to answer your prayer. It will be a little while. And... Your prayer will be answered when the rest of the believers during the tribulation are martyred and killed, which means God put a cap on how many believers would be martyred during the tribulation. That's a good thing. That's a gracious thing. But he knows and only he knows. So that is uh, seal number five, worldwide martyrdom and also God responding to the prayers of the saints of when he's going to pour out his vengeance at the end of the tribulation. Let's go on to number two, and that's Seal number six, which is kind of unique because up to this point in the first five seal judgments, uh, in pouring out his wrath and his judgments, God was actually working in cooperation with human elements and human components, whether it was these four riders of horses or these uh, saints in heaven who were praying. But number six seal is unique in that God responds and works alone apart from any human doing. And also the nature of it is different than the first five. So let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 12, uh, by the way, number two, the Lamb opens the sixth seal and it's natural disasters. Natural disasters and cosmic disasters of a universal, unprecedented order. 
By the way, Revelation talks about several earthquakes that are going to happen. And they are not the same one being repeated over and over again. Some people say that. That's not true. They call it recapitulation. No, every earthquake that happens is different than the one before it. As a matter of fact, they're getting worse and worse as they go. And this is one of the earlier earthquakes that will happen probably just before the mid-period of the tribulation, before the abomination of desolation, around that time. Uh, Verse 12, And so uh, John sees the sixth seal, and I looked, and when Jesus broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, a mega seismos, a huge, massive earthquake. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24. This is a universal earthquake. It happens all over the world. These are natural cosmic disasters, judgments from God. He's the creator, and he tweaks them a little bit. Not only are there earthquakes all over the world. By the way, what does is, what is an earthquake do to you? I'll tell you what it does. Uh, I will never forget. What was it, 1994? At like, what was it, 3.31 in the morning? 4.31 in the morning? Southern California? where I just happened to live in... I mean, I worked in Northridge. And that was the epicenter of the Northridge earthquake that was like 7.0. And I fell asleep on the couch watching television. And at 4.31 in the morning, all I know is I was awakened, thrown from the couch. The television was thrown on the floor. Uh, the entire stand that the TV was on fell over, almost landed on top of me. Ceiling tiles were falling down on my head. And it took me just a second to realize... And the whole... Everything was shaking in the house. <laughs> like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And, I began, and I'm laying on the ground and I panic and I realize, we're having an earthquake. It's the end of the age. I don't want to go through the tribulation. <laughs> I'm not from California. I'm not used to these earthquake things. I thought I was a Christian. God, my theology's messed up. So anyway, I'm trying to get up to stand. I can't stand. The cat splits out the window. We didn't see her for two weeks. And I'm crawling down the... And then we got this little uh, kind of apartment setting crawling down this long corridor of the hallway and my second daughter, 17 days old, and, I'm, and the tiles are falling on my head and I get to my daughter's room, Carissa, and I open the door and she's like uh, two years old and she's standing in the crib. Like, wow. And then I go over and then there's Debbie and the newborn 17-year-old and she snatched uh, baby Brianna up and then we all just kind of made our way eventually outside and we went out in the street and everybody's in their underwear in the middle of the street. and But they don't care. And I think my nerves were on edge for probably about three months. That's what I think of earthquakes. But anyway, great earthquake. I can't even imagine. This must be like a 9.5 because it's universal and worldwide. And the sun at that time is going to become as sackcloth. One thing you need to note in verse 12 and 13 is all these indicators of metaphors. This is where you don't take it too literally. We take Revelation literally, but there are indicators at times where we don't take everything Wooden, in a wooden literal sense. And here's indicators when they use words like as and like, which is used four times in 12 and 13. These are metaphors. We're talking metaphors and similes and hyperbolic language to be graphic and to be specific and to get it into our brain and also create a vision so we can visualize it and understand because revelation is communicated through sign language, said John in Revelation 1. So notice the as and the likes through this. But the earthquake is going to be real. It's going to be literal. Uh, but the sun will become black as sackcloth. The sun is just going to darken. We don't know why. Supernaturally, God is just going to darken the sun instantaneously because he does it as, as black as goat's hair. That's what that means. And the whole moon became like blood. The moon doesn't become blood. It becomes like blood. It just becomes blood red, which is a sign of judgment. These are all signs of judgment. Some of these are similar to the 10 plagues of Egypt, by the way. 
Verse 13. Not the stars, the asteroids, the asteroids, a meteor shower. That's what's going to happen. They're going to pummel the earth. We know that their asteroids are pummeling planets all the time. We have meteors that even hit the earth today. And the meteors of the sky, the asteroids of the sky are going to fall to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs smashing down onto the ground when shaken by a great wind. Cosmic disasters. God, God's warning people. This is his judgment. And he's doing this against unbelievers, against earth dwellers. And you know what? They get the message. They get the message. They know that this is God. They know this is Jesus punishing them, but they don't repent. That's the amazing thing. That's how hard sin can be. How blinding, how callous. Conscience is totally seared. Worldwide cosmic disasters. And they don't repent. Wow. 14, the imagery goes on as you look into the sky with the darkening of the moon and the darkening of the sun and the whole sky looks like it's just rolling up as a scroll and all these meteors flying into the ground. The whole sky rolling up, as it were, into a scroll and every mountain and island is moving and shaking in its place all over the world. And here's the response from all the people in the world. And there's five categories of people, which includes all of society who are traumatized by all these events verse 15 and the king and it goes in descending order with the most uh, powerful the kings and rulers of the universe verse 15 and the kings of the earth that's the rulers and they're unbelievers by the way the kings of the earth and the great men that's all influential political politicians at the time with delegated authority and the commanders those are all the military leaders and their men and the rich and the strong that's the elite in society and every slave and free man, that's just the common man. This is everybody, every echelon of society. No one will escape. And categorically, they are all unbelievers in this response. How do we know that? Because of what they say. The middle of verse 15. They hid themselves, what they did and what they said. It says they hid themselves in the caves. So here's all these shaking mountains and they're going to find a hole in the ground and they're going to hide like Saddam Hussein did and all these others running and hiding in caves hiding in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And here's what they say. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. They want to commit suicide. They'd rather commit suicide than face the wrath of Jesus Christ. Rather than bend the knee and say, I repent, Lord Jesus, they'd rather die and go to hell. That's what they're saying. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him. Who is Him? Well, the one who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and also from the wrath of the Lamb. They know this is from Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb being poured out on Earth dwellers, unbelievers, for the great day of their wrath at that time in history has come and who is able to stand? No one's able to stand if they don't know Christ at that time. So that is seal number five and seal number six, coming devastation worldwide. And as believers, two things. We don't need to fear. You don't need to fear if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ because this is not meant for you. You will be saved from that very hour in the future and in history. Praise God. Isaiah 35 verse 4 predicts that you will be saved from that hour and God's people from the wrath of the Lamb. Isaiah 35 4 says this, Take courage, fear not. Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come and He's going to come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. That's the promise to the believer. This wrath is not meant for you. And then finally, I want to close with this. If you've got your Bible, you can look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Another great promise for the believer, for the Christian, for the church of how we're going to be protected by this hour of tribulation. The way that God's going to protect the church and Christians is He's going to come and rapture His church before the tribulation. And that's the context of 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the rapture. Jesus talked about it in John 14. 
Paul reiterates it with more detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 13 to 18, talks about the rapture where Christians will be preserved from the tribulation. And then chapter 5, verse 1 and following, talks about when the tribulation will come and it's going to punish unbelievers. And that the church will be spared from that time. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, fellow Christians, about those who are asleep, fellow believers who have died before you, uh, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and He did, even so God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, other believers who died, who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, Christians, until the coming of the Lord at the rapture, shall not proceed or go before those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For the Lord Himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first from their graves. Verse 17, Then we, Christians, who are alive and remain at the time of the rapture, shall be caught up, snatched up, raptured, literally. Raptura is the Latin word. Arpazo is the Greek word, raptura. We shall be raptured up. Notice we are raptured up together with other believers who were raised in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, this is good news, comfort one another with these words. We will be spared the tribulation by the rapture. That's why we can encourage one another. But he goes on. What happens after the rapture? End times, tribulations, verse 1, chapter 5. Now as to the times and epics, the end times... Different story. Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you because you can find it in Revelation. You can find it with Jesus, Matthew 24, Luke. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, that's the tribulation, will come just like a thief in the night while they're, they, notice it's they, not we, they, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Destruction will come upon them, not believers. Suddenly, like birth pangs. See that? That's the terminology Jesus used. Birth pangs, that's the tribulation. Suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons and daughters of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, that's unbelievers, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Verse 8, but since we are of the day as believers, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, key verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. There it is. But for obtaining salvation through the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank the Father for that great truth. Dear Father, we do thank You for revealing truth to us through Your Scripture. Thank You for making it clear through the teaching of the Holy Spirit our personal indwelling teacher. Thank you that you can tell us about the future so we can pre prepare now in our prayers and also being more diligent in sharing the gospel with those who don't know you. And I do pray that you would keep wooing people to yourself that they might be saved by you because you are a loving and gracious, patient, merciful God. Jesus came the first time to seek and to save that which is lost. We thank you for that great truth. And thank you for the promise to the church your beloved bride, the body of Christ, that you're going to spare from the wrath of the Lamb. Help us to take rest in that and also give you the glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org 
or call us at 650-630-0009.